All right, good evening. And uh, come on back. And if you open up your Bibles, if you need a Bible, there's one in the back. Uh, we're currently traveling in the Old Testament through the book of Job. Through the book of Job. Hey, so just so I don't do it in the middle of, uh, the middle of uh, our teaching, here are some books that I've just um, benefited from that I have relations uh, to what we're going to talk about tonight in different ways. This book right here is so powerful, One Minute After You Die by Erwin Lutzer. Uh, One Minute After You Die by Erwin Lutzer, used to be the president, right, John, of Moody Bible Institute. Get that book great book. We're going to talk a little bit about it tonight. Here's one that you probably can't get except here at Calvary Chapel Pittsburgh or South Pittsburgh because we just ordered it today. The Bow in the Cloud or Words of Comfort for Hours of Sorrow. It was written in 1880 and it's written by a Scottish pastor. I don't know if you guys know who Greg Laurie is, but he about 12, 13 years ago lost a son. Well, Heaven gained a son when his son died in a car wreck, and he said this is the book that he went through when he was dealing with his grief. The bow and the cloud are words of comfort for hours of sorrow. They'll be here in a couple weeks. We'll have about 20 of those. What an amazing devotional. You know what's cool about it is these old guys, they give you the scripture, but they don't tell you where it is in the Bible. So you really got to search that out. I've also enjoyed this, The Undiscovered Country by Ron Rhodes, talking about heaven. I love that book. Uh, And one I don't have with me, it's on my Kindle, which I don't know the password to anymore. Uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Good book. All right. But let's go to the best book. And that's the Bible. And here's what we're going to talk about tonight, chapters 3 through 7, hopefully. Except for as I was standing up there, something came in my head. I want to go back over with us before we move on. But he- here it is. Let's, let's talk about this. I, I love going, I've told you this before, uh, growing up, uh, or when our kids were growing up, every year for about 9 or 10 years, we went to a place called Sandy Cove. That's where we went for some summer vacation. We went there every summer. What was wonderful about it, I told you maybe last Sunday or a couple Sundays ago, is we had four little kids and no family in the Pittsburgh area, and they babysat our kids almost all day long. It was amazing. But then we got to play with them and stuff. You guys think I don't love my kids or something, but I do. But, you know, when you're parents and you have no anyway. But one of the great things about Sandy Cove was this. And a lot of the families that attended all went the same week every year. So there was five weeks. Like if you were like a fifth weeker, everybody knew it, right? Or a fourth weeker or something. One of the great things about Sandy Cove that a lot of people never got was finding out the stories of the other families. It was great, yes, to enjoy your family, have fun, you know, play squirt gun and, you know, wave cutters and all that sort of thing. All that was amazing and fun, and the speakers were great. But one of the great blessings was meeting the people and learning their stories and then coming back year after year and finding out their stories, all the triumphs, all the trials, all the hard times, the good times, and everything in between. And you know what? The Lord does that for us. You know, at Sandy Cove, sometimes the, 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 the temptation is to run out and to play all the games and to get in all the activities, which are fun, and not to stop and learn about the people. And it's amazing to me that God tells his story of redemption through people. Why didn't he just write a textbook? You ever thought about that? He could have just written a textbook. But he writes his whole love letter to us, all 66 books, one love letter. This love letter to us, he writes it through families and people and stories. And here we come to one, Job. A righteous man, you know that. 
a righteous. He was blameless and upright, feared God, shunned evil with several children and great possessions and the greatest man of the East. And we see in chapters 1 and 2 a heavenly scene that Job never sees. That's important. A heavenly scene that Job never sees where Satan basically says to God, well, that's all well and good as long as you protect him or protect any follower of a cry or a follower of you, any of your followers. But if you remove any hedge of protection and they lose things, they'll curse you. And Satan sets out to portray God, isn't this amazing? Sets out to portray God as an impersonal, you know, flip the switch puppeteer behind a curtain, sound familiar? That just moves people in impersonal ways. And he goes through this thing where he says, but if you let me do certain things like attack his property and his children or curse you, and you remember that didn't work. So he says, yeah, okay, that's fine, but what about skin for skin? If you let me touch his person, his body, and you know all these sores came up on his body. And the only thing that Job kept doing was worshiping the Lord (laughs) and withholding his tongue, and he wouldn't curse. And you remember, right? He goes through all these terrible things, and then the one that he loves the most, the one who he's yoked with, think about that, who follow the Lord together, husband and wife, the wife, says, just curse him and get it over with. It'd be better if you were dead. Whew. You imagine the pain and the turmoil of that in your heart? And if that's not enough, God sends these friends, <laughs> or the friends come, and they initially do some neat stuff, stuff that I would say is really biblical when there's uh, families in crisis or people in crisis. What's that? Well, the first thing is, you get into trouble or a tribulation, you'll find out who your friends are. Here is the greatest man of the East, must have had lots of friends, only three come and sit with him. And they do something that's New Testament really cool. Be slow to speak, quick to hear. Quick to hear, slow to speak, James 1 tells us. Hear people. Boy, is that a word for the Christian church, man. I wish we'd just, forgive me for about what I'm about ready to say. Shut up some and listen to people's stories. We're always just ready to rev it up and to give it to them and just blast them with our stuff. And the Lord just says, hey, just slow down and listen now first. And then there'll be an opportunity to speak. And here, these friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come and they do something that's really quite cool. They just sit there for seven days on the dung heap Yes, there's ashes of garbage, but there's also where they put their, you know, their, their um, bodily waste. And that's where he sits, and he's scratching himself. And they come and they sit with him, and they don't say anything. They just are there with him. And they saw that his grief was very great. So let's go on and let's read chapter 3. But, well, let's pause because <laughs> there's something that I want to share with you. I want to share with you Colossians 1, 16. See, I really think this short little verse, this short little verse sums up Christianity in America. It's Colossians 1.16, I hope. Yeah, it is. That's actually 15. Uh, no, it's, it's 16. For by him all things were created uh, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, all are principalities or powers. Now, this is the verse right here. Listen to this. All things were created through him, and here it is. All things were created for him. I want you to, as we move through Job, I want you to remember that. Here's why. Here's why. Listen to this. 
Because I think how lots of Christians live, Satan pounces on. What? Because you see, I think a lot of Christians live like God is for them. In other words, God was made for them like a butler. We weren't made for him, like the scriptures tell us. Now, this is important. (laughs) We were made for him, for his good pleasure. He's not made for us. Let me just say that again. We were made for him, for his pleasure. We were, he, he's not made for us. But see, a lot of people live the Christian life the other way, that he was made for us. And it makes all the difference in the world about what we're talking about here tonight. Because you see, Satan is holding out that very principle. He wants you to live like God was made for you. Because he knows, eventually... As you keep asking, and the Lord delivers, and the Lord delivers, but there's going to come a time where, quote, unquote, the Lord doesn't deliver, and you'll get angry and curse God. I'm convinced. It's what's wrong with the prosperity gospel. Just have enough faith, brother. You can have a Lexus. Just have faith in your faith and build it up and build it up and build it up. But see, the problem is, is what happens if he doesn't answer the prayer? Then what? When you're thinking and believing that he was made for you, it'll wreck your whole life. What's wrong with me? Why did I get cancer? Why did he fire me? I had it. Did I, did I not have enough faith? What? And what does it lead to? Bitterness and anger with the Lord. How do I know? Because in the first two chapters, we see it. Basically, what the devil wants us to do, Satan wants us to do, is to live the opposite of what Colossians tells us. Live as if God is your butler. Oh, he loves it. He even kind of promoted it a little bit. Man, you might get some stuff. You might get some stuff. But what happens when you don't? If you don't, you'll curse God. That's what Satan's saying. Isn't that interesting? So that's what goes on in chapters 1 and 2. But remember, Job hasn't been privy to the scene in the heavenlies. Job hasn't been privy to the scene in the heavenlies. And we say, didn't we say last week, that we want to come to the point where we treasure God above all through Christ. We even taught about it on Sunday where we Uh, learned about the rich young ruler in which the story is not the rich young ruler. It's two rich young rulers. The one can't get past the idol in his heart. The other is standing there just saying, accept me and come to me. For our sakes, the rich one, Jesus, was made poor so that we could be rich (laughs) spiritually. And so... We come to this place now of chapter 3, Job hasn't been privy. He's actually made some amazing declarations or done some amazing things. In chapter 1, verse 20, after a lot of his property and children are wrecked, he falls down to the ground and he worships. And then he gets struck himself, and the wife says, hold fast to your integrity, curse God, and, curse God and die. And his response is, isn't this beautiful? No, 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 no. Shall we not accept adversity also if we're going to accept good from God? Wow. So he said some amazing things. But come on, folks, he's a human. And it gets real in chapter 3 now. Listen to this, the word of the Lord, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, not the light, or nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, 
May darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. Make no joyful shout. Come into it. Talking about the day of his birth, his birthday. Bob, I don't want you guys to sing birthday. No, I'm kidding. He asked me why nobody sang to me. But look, that's what he's saying. I don't want anybody to celebrate. I, 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 don't, I wish I wasn't even born. This is the original George Bailey. Come on now. It's a wonderful life. This is it. He, he, he wished he'd never been born. And I was never even conceived. I don't think this is a... I don't think Job here is... At this particular point is wishing that he'd commit suicide. But what he's saying is, I'm so miserable. What happens if I just wasn't even born? Life would have been way better. Jeremiah said this, by the way, in his book. What's fascinating about this... May that day be darkness. What would God say? God said, and, and let there be light. <laughs> Jesus is the light of the world. May that day be darkness. There's this little play. Remember, chapter 3 now, through much of the end of the book, almost all of the rest of the book is poetry. It's been prose in the two chapters before, and now he launches into poetry here, the writer. And here... He's making these themes, and one of his is darkness and light. He doesn't want any light to shine upon his birthday. This is tough stuff. Go back to verse 8. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are, re are ready to arouse Leviathan. That's the sea dragon. They had a whole bunch of ancient myths about these dragons that would attack the sailors and the ships. And they had people that were into astrology and all the weird magical stuff who would try to conjure up the sea dragon who would make chaos. And that's what they're referring to there. May those, he's saying, man, I wish my birthday, my, whole, my day that I was even born was cursed. Call up the creature of chaos. That's kind of a reference of the day. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day because it didn't shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. And then he goes on. Look at this. It gets really raw here. Anybody ever been raw? <laughs> You've been raw? You lost somebody? Somebody died in your family? You're hurting you had a sickness, all kinds of things. Why didn't I die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver or... Why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. They are the prison, uh, there the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but it doesn't come, and search for it more than his hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groaning pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared that can't come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Listen, one pastor we know says it like this. Job here, in, in his rawness is speaking out of frustration, not revelation, folks. You see, many of the cults even, Jehovah's Witnesses, of which my dad came out of, Seventh-day Adventists teach this. There's some other that believe it, that when you die, nothing happens. And if you read this, that seemed to say, seems to say what happens. But the problem is, this is Job in the Old Testament speaking out of frustration. 
We know when we read the rest of the Old Testament, or excuse me, the rest of the New Testament, that we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, which means when we're out of the body, we are present with the Lord, which means, or I also refer you to Jesus on the cross when he said to the thief there, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The idea of this thing about when you die and you go and nothing happens and it's even fun and you can talk to other people and rest. You see, the Old Testament, the view of death is dim. But when you get to the Old Testament, Jesus opens it up and you can now see. This is the same exact talk we had in Ecclesiastes. Solomon in his backslidden state, had a lot of backslidden things to say. And it's interesting when you talk to people of some of the groups that I mentioned previously, some of the scripture that they're going to quote you is from Ecclesiastes and Job to tell you and to convince you that your soul sleeps at death. That's not true. In Philippians 1.21 Paul also understood, and you can read it there, that if he died, it would be an immediate gain. We, when our, we uh, go from this life and we are found in Christ, we're immediately in the presence of the Lord. And we, you, don't, you understand that this doesn't take away in any way from the truth of the Bible. You, you get that, right? These are true things that Job really said. <laughs> in his frustration. (laughs) But later, God challenged Job, turn with me. Maybe you've never seen this. Maybe you've counted on this for your proof of soul sleep. Well, maybe you've never been seen, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Turn over to Job chapter 38. See, this is a really important You know why it's important? Here's why it's important. After I, as we take a time out, this is so important. You know, realize one of the reasons, or at least I think one of the reasons Job was suffering as he did, because he never saw any hope. You see, people can suffer. This is an interesting thing. If they know there's hope or a purpose in it, there you go. But when people don't realize there's a purpose in the pain, it's like corrosion to the heart and to the spiritual life. It's like acid, poison. Are you getting it? And one of the reasons I think this is in there and Job was suffering so much is because he couldn't see a lot of purpose in the pain because he had a dim view of the afterlife. Listen, I don't know if you're tracking with me. You live on this side of the cross, and you can read the New Testament also. By the way, we're going to get glimpses of the New Testament. I already read you one. You didn't even know it. That says your suffering is just nothing compared to eternity that you're going to spend with glorified, resurrected bodies with Jesus. And you're going to be so enthralled with him. You know those questions? You say, I'm going to ask him that question when I get there. You're not even going to care. You're just going to be enraptured in glorifying the Lord. And see, we, we know that. So see, when we know that, it gives us a different view on these present sufferings, folks. Here he has a dim view. He doesn't have a big view. He doesn't have a correct view. Oh, I told you I was going to show you. Of what God is doing. Look what God says in chapter 38 of Job, speaking to Job. Who is this who darkens counsels by words without knowledge? 
This is God's nice way of saying, Job, you have no idea what you've been talking about. You have no idea what you've been talking about. Look, look over to 17. Here, here it comes. Here it comes, soul sleepers. Verse 17, have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? In other words, Job, you don't even know about the gates of death. Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Job, you have no idea. Isn't that interesting? One of the things we want to do here is teach you about the glories of heaven. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to run to. God wasn't made for us. We were made for him. And sometimes, whether it's satanic things that happen, we sow what we, we reap what we sow, or we just live in a fallen world and accidents happen, you're going to suffer trials and persecution or maybe something for your faith as well. And when you're living for the Lord, as opposed to him living for you, listen, recognizing that this is just for a short momentary time, just before the dew burns off the grass, forever with the Lord. Oh, man. It, it, it just puts a whole different spin on everything we're doing. Of course, in our suffering, but then also in our, the goals of our life. Is your goal to make money and to have houses and da 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 Or is your goal just to lay it all out for his glory? Right? It's to lay it all out. Well, come on back. <laughs> So here in 11 through about verse 19, he speaks of something he doesn't know anything about. God tells him this right there in chapter 38, verse 17. You don't know about the date, uh, gates of death. You, you, you don't know what you're talking about. By the way, God probably didn't say it the way I just said it. God was real patient with him. Oh, wow. How about this? Where do we see a glimpse of the gospel? Right here in chapter, two, or chapter 3, right here in verse 20. Why is this light given to him who is in misery? That's the question, why can't I die now? And this is a reference here, because remember, light is given by God. And then there was light. And so it's a reference to that. There's a, it's like, you know how excited everybody gets when you see the little flower pop out? What are they called? I don't know any of them. Crocus? I don't know what they are. Uh, I, 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 I have an office that looks right over Mount Washington, man. In the springtime, you know, you're sitting there and it's just real ugly and bare. And one day you look out and there's these red buds just everywhere on the trees. And you're like, wow, life's coming. <laughs> That's what chapter, or that's what verse 20 is right there. There's hope. There's light. Why is light given to man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Now listen, i got to just tell you this. I, this gets me in trouble. I get it, but i got to say it. You know that stuff about declaring things, and then they're going to come to pass? <laughs> That's Job's theology right there. Oh my goodness, I said it. It's going to happen to me. I can't even settle down now. I have no rest for trouble. I declared it. I must have said something wrong. You know, you know like if I said to uh, one of my friends, man, you should just drop dead. Oh, come on. You're so spiritual up here. <laughs> you should just drop dead. You, you know, People in that name it, claim it thing, oh my gosh, my words came out of my mouth. Oh, they're going to drop dead. No, come on, folks. Do you really think that God's sitting there going, oh my goodness, Tim said to Bob, drop dead. Okay, we got to do it. Or Tim said, uh, you know, he wants, uh, he, he likes the Lexus with the sport package, but he'd like the preferred package, and he declared it out there. Oh, okay, he declared it. It's his. Folks, that's not how God works, and that's what he's kind of saying right there. 
I'm so worried because I said some of these things and they came out of my mouth. But here's the funny part. Don't you know this? See, God is your dad by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's a good dad, one that we should revere, but he's a patient dad and he's a kind dad and he knows we make mistakes and he knows that we say stuff like Peter that we shouldn't say sometimes. And here there's a lot of things Job shouldn't have said. And when we get to the end of the book, you're going to see how patient God was. By the way, everybody gets jazzed up about Job in the first chapters, and they love the last couple chapters. But when you start preaching through everything in between, because it's this back and forth dialogue, you know what happens? The crowds go away. Or they skip it in their two-year Bible plan, because it's boring. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that just like life? <laughs> when a trial comes, what can I think of it through? How can I get it? What, what am I getting out of it? But then, you know, the newness of it kind of wears off, and it, it just it, it settles down in, and then life happens. Might be for a long time. And then when it winds up and it's over, yay! But down here, it's rough. And that's the same pattern of the book of Job. Isn't that interesting? Well, here, the first friend speaks. And they're going to start getting themselves into trouble. It's interesting, isn't it, right? They were there right after Job had made his declarations of faith in chapter 1 and 2. So they respond not to chapter 1 and 2. They respond to chapter 3. And Job is getting really frustrated, folks. And the friends have been sitting there, and they kind of just watched and listened, and nobody said anything. And then they're like, okay, he's going to speak. Let's, let's listen. And a lot of frustration comes flying out. <laughs> and guess what the friends do? They become know-it-alls. And they get a little perturbed, and they're a little frustrated, and they're impatient with their friend. And look what they say. Eliphaz the Temanite, verse chapter 4. This Temanite is, or Teman is a Edomite city known for wisdom. And you could look that up in Jeremiah 49, 7. Known for wisdom. This guy must have been the oldest, they think, because he speaks first. And Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Hey, if one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? <laughs> See how sugary sweet that is, man? You won't get tired of me if I give you some advice, will you? Who can withhold himself from speaking? I've got to give you a piece of my mind. I've been listening, and I, I just have to. Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands, apparently, he was the greatest man of the East because not only was he rich, but he could counsel in good ways. Doesn't it seem to be that way? Because your words have upheld him who were stumbling or who is stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. You know what Proverbs 25, 11 says? I love this one. Don't you love this verse? A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. That's beautiful. Apparently, Job was a man who was wise and kind and loving and, listen, took interest in other people, folks. And so he spoke these things, and people were strengthened by some of the things he says. But then it shifts. Eliphaz, who comes with this flattery, says this, but, you know, now it comes upon you, and you are weary. Oh, man, right out of the gate. What a low blow. In other words, you're a hypocrite, man. You give all this advice to everybody else, but it comes to you and you're weary. It touches you and you're troubled. It's, is not your reverence, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright, where were the upright ever cut off? Now, here's where you got to take a time out and understand the theology of the day. Here's what they thought, and you're going to see it for several chapters now. Here's what they think. By the way, a lot of people think this way today. Here's what it is. God's sovereign. I love it. A lot of people say that, don't they? 
God's sovereign. He's in control. He's still on the throne. Yeah, we say that. So we're cool with that. Oh, but you know, God is perfectly fair and just. True? Oh yeah, God's perfectly fair and just. But this theology here then would go on to say, and he always blesses righteousness and punishes wickedness. Therefore, their theology says, if anybody's suffering, they must have sinned or there's something wrong with them them, and they're being punished justly for any sin that they have. See, that's what they were thinking here. That's what you encounter even in the New Testament, some of the thinking in the New Testament. Listen to what he says. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Nobody ever perished being innocent, he's saying. There must be something wrong with you, Job. Now, Job wasn't a man without sin, but he kept short accounts with God. Remember, he knew how to do sacrifices. He sacrificed for his kids. He must have done it for himself. He was upright and blameless. Just like Abraham and the others, he kept short accounts. He was a man of righteousness. There's no hidden sin with Job. And yet here they come in their theology, and the theology sounds good. God's sovereign. Yay, okay, I believe that. He's just and fair. Oh man, I believe that. But he only gives good stuff to the righteous and bad stuff to the wicked. Therefore, if you're currently suffering, there must be something wrong with you. You see, all of that sounds good, but there's a couple things we're missing. Remember we talked about one last week? One thing is the, the assumption that anything that's suffering is bad. Who says that? Anything that uh, is negative or suffering is bad, well, don't know about that. But also, you got to know that ultimately this stuff is true. He is going to set everything right and judge each of us and judge righteousness and evil. He will do that. But right now, when we live on the earth, there's not always immediate justice. Are you catching that? Because the Bible says, doesn't it, that rain falls on the just and the unjust. David laments the fact in Psalm 37. Asaph laments the fact in Psalm 73. And Jeremiah talks about it at length in his 12th chapter, about why does the wicked get ahead? God You said this, and you said that. Why does the wicked get ahead? Okay, everybody tracking with me? So, God is going to put everything right and judge, but it's not always immediate. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Sometimes things just happen, or sometimes things are sent into your life. There's no hidden sin in your life. It just is. Look at verse 8. Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity, they're willful, and sow trouble, reap the same. Of course. You see, I want you to see this. I want you to see how spiritual all of this sounds. Of course the Bible says you reap what you sow. I go down here to the bar, drink 15 beers and 10 shots, pray, Lord, keep me out of harm, and go harm somebody. Whose fault is it, God's or mine? It's mine. I reaped what I sowed, but what they're talking about here is more like karma. You do some good stuff, good stuff will float to you. You do some bad stuff, bad stuff will float to you. So it sounds good, but it's not exactly right. You understand it? Do you understand why James says be slow or hear for a long time, do that first and hear, and then... After measured prayer and thought, speak. Why does it say, Romans 12, maybe you want to go over there. Why does it say this in Romans? Romans 12, everybody go there. Why does it say, 
Let love be without hypocrisy, verse 9. Hate what is evil or abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Here it comes. Rejoicing in hope. Now watch. Watch this. Patient in tribulation. You don't always have to say everything with, and tell people what you know about pat answers and pat formulas. Be patient. Distribute to the needs of the saints. Give to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Just rejoice. You ever been around that person where something good happens to you and you say, oh man, it was so great, you know, blah, blah, blah. This happened and it was so, and then they go, oh, I know. Guess what happened to me today? You know what I mean? And you're like, can't just once you listen to what happened good to me. It's a drag, isn't it? Here, he's saying, zip it. Rejoice. Quit talking about yourself so much. Just rejoice with those who rejoice. So great that that happened for you. Praise the Lord. And then just this one. Remember I said a couple Wednesdays ago, sometimes people just need a hug. They don't need your five points of Calvinism versus Arminianism speech. They just need a hug. Weep with those who weep and be of the same mind toward uh, uh, one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise. Look at that. In your own opinions. Do you know how high God's ways are? His ways are so high. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are so high. Who could know him? I mean, if God was so great, one pastor, or God was so little that we could all figure him out, one pastor said, he wouldn't be a God to worship. But we want to figure him out. Raise your hand if that's you. I put two up. Yes, it, we, we inquire of the things of the Lord, and yes, we move towards him. And we, but listen, folks, these people are wrecking this guy. The friends, they're giving them shotgun theology. They're responding to a message that's infuriated them or ticked them off a little bit. So they're firing back and they got some great spiritual biblical things, but it's not applied wisely. There's nothing here we're going to find out that Job has done. But by the blast of God, these people perish, they say. Can you listen to this? And by the breath of his anger, they're consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. He's talking about how the pride of lions is natural human strength, and that will all even be broken by the Lord. If you don't get this right with the Lord, he's saying to Job, you're hiding something. And now a word, listen, this is kind of strange. This guy, Eliphaz, he sees this dream. A word was secretly brought to him, and my ear received a whisper of it in disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. He had a nightmare. Fear came upon him, trembling, which made all his bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, and the hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I couldn't discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Look, by the way, my chapter 17 has a little um, uh, quotation mark because they think from 20, 17 to 21 is what was revealed in this vision. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? In other words, what Eliphaz is backhandedly saying to Job is, you got to be wrong, Job. God's right. He's right. You can't be more righteous than him. You're saying you didn't do anything, or you're going to tell us this, but you did do something. Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, uh, if, he, if he charges uh, uh, his angels with error, how much more with those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth? They're broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever, forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom. Again, he's not telling us the entire story here. That's the mark of this council. Are you catching it? He's not telling the entire story. Look, look at this, folks. 
Yes, we live in a house of clay. Yes, we live in a house of clay that eventually goes back to dust. But there's another thing that you need to know, that made it, man is made in the image and likeness of God. Isn't that true? So while we are, dust goes back to dust, we're made in the image and likeness of God. What he's saying here is, look at this. He, God, verse 18, puts no trust in servants or angels. He ain't going to put a trust in people. Not Because all you are, you people, that's what Eliphaz is saying. You're nothing more than just a house of clay. You're nothing more than a house of clay to God. Do you see that he's talking spiritually? But it's like he's a messenger from the enemy. He's saying the exact same things that Satan's saying. You're nothing more than dust. Who here likes classic rock? Dust in the wind? You're nothing more than dust in the wind? Seriously. Kansas. It's the same themes over and over. You're nothing more than dust in the wind. And what's really funny about this is, isn't this funny? Right here, when the guy is criticizing and speaking wrongly, and almost as if he's a messenger from the enemy, saying, nah, God's nothing. He is impersonal. Exactly what Satan wants you to believe, by the way. He's actually telling an amazing truth that he didn't even mean. And what is that? Do you know this, that we have treasure in our earthen vessels? We have treasure in our earthen vessels, and the treasure is the light and life of Christ. When he comes and he says, you're nothing more than dust, you're nothing more than a house of clay, you're nothing, you're broken in pieces. Do you know what we say? Because the enemy wants us to believe this, do you know what we say? We agree with our adversary quickly. You're right. That's from the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, by the way. I am dust, but I'm made in the image and likeness of God. And just like Gideon, do you remember that story? Gideon, he's facing the 135,000 Midianite soldiers. Do you remember this? And uh, uh, he had 300 men go around their camp. Remember they had these flames and these earthen jars? Remember this? You don't remember this? And they break the jars, and light comes shining out, and they do some screaming and stuff, and they were so confused that they fled in fear. And the point is, we have the light of the world, Jesus Christ, inside of us. And the enemy's never beaten until the jar on the stick is broken so that the light can come through. Are you catching it? And here, this man, Eliphaz, is giving this incorrect gospel. He's this, this struggle, or incorrect gospel, incorrect counsel. He's giving this, it's this struggle for Job to believe that God's impersonal. And without his even knowing it, He's sharing what the gospel really is. One time I was down in the street and there was this, uh, in downtown Pittsburgh, and there was this guy, and he was just a street preacher and he was screaming and yelling, not making fun. He was effective, I'm not making fun. But he came up to me and he was screaming and yelling. It was hysterical and I'm kind of laughing. And he goes, hey brother, do you know if you're going to heaven? And all I said was, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And guess what he did? He slapped me high five and kept going. <laughs> Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's it. We're just broken clay pots. But if we try to be strong and don't rely upon the grace of God in weakness, none of him can shine out. Isn't that beautiful? Well, keep going. And in chapter 5 here, I'm not going to make it, am I? He says this, Eliphaz, the dream didn't seem to work. So he goes, okay, well, let's talk about what I observed. 
observed. Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man. That can mean sinful man. And envy slays a simple one. I, here comes the cheapest shot to date. This is awful. It almost, it's hard to read. I have seen the foolish taking root. Sinners that started to prosper. But suddenly, I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. Because of the sin in you, Job, your sons are dead. They're crushed in the gate. And there is no deliverer because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance, for affliction doesn't come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Are you catching what he's saying there? Trouble comes from your sin. It doesn't just come up out of the ground. Yet man is born to trouble. And this, as the sparks fly upward from the ground, it just doesn't come out of the ground. You're, if you're in trouble, it's because you're a sinner and there's, you've not taken care of it and there's something in your life. That's why you're in trouble. And now watch this. But as for me, here's what I would do. If you're asking me, Job, and you are asking me, here's what I would do. I would seek God and to God I would commit my cause. Confess your sins who does great things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water. He sets hot on high. Those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Verse 12, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. Verse 13, which Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 3.19, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hands. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. In other words, 8 through 16 is saying, hey, there's no use, Job, playing around here. God knows too much. He knows what you've done. (laughs) So foreboding, right? Great friends. He goes on in 17 through 27. He says, surrender to to God. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. See how nice he is about it? Oh, happy is the man who God corrects, Job. Therefore, don't despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. Yes, or excuse me, he shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he shall redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. And you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine. And you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. Verse 23, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field. And the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens its season. Behold, this we have searched out. By the way, it says we. It means his friends is on board with what he was saying. It's true. Hear it and know for yourself. Now, I want you to think this through. He's saying, listen, if you confess your sins, everything's going to be great, and you're going to get all of this stuff. And Job knows, listen, listen, listen. Job knows if he surrenders to this terrible counsel that he's getting, Satan wins. What do you mean? Guess what Satan said? He'll only worship you if he gets the stuff. And Job knows that he's kept short accounts with God. There's nothing he's hiding from God. His folks are wrong or these friends are wrong. And they're just saying, just do it. Just confess your sins. And if you do, look at all the things. The scourge will be gone. You're going to laugh about this. You're going to have stuff, and everything's going to be great. If you just do it, just do it. Job knows if he does it, he commits the blasphemy Satan wanted him to commit all all the while. Isn't that interesting? What Job is doing here is worshiping God for who he is. 
even in his honesty about not wanting to remember his life. He's raw and real with the Lord, but hope springs out of these times that he's having with the Lord, and he still will not succumb to blaspheming the Lord. I don't know, if, if you're like me, I'm thinking to myself about this time, Lord, help me. I get mad when, you know, the car won't start or the windshield wipers go bad or in here, this man and all of these things. So Job answers and says, Oh, that grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. This is, he just tells them the bitterness of his suffering. We, could you just weigh what I'm going through, consider what I'm going through? My spirit drinks in the poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Remember, he didn't have access to what was going on in the heavenlies. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? In other words, when somebody's filled up, they don't bray, but I'm suffering. So I've got the, like this food that tastes terrible, so I've got to spice it up. And the way I do that is I talk about it and I tell you what's wrong. My soul refuses to touch them. There is loathsome as food to me. Oh, that I ha- might have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exult. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Job won't succumb to what they want him to do, but he's still hurting, and he says it. What strength do I have, verse 11, that I should hope, and what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of my, or of stones, or my flesh, or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me, and is success driven from me? To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend. Please. Guys, just be kind. Even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. This is interesting. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brook that pass away. In other words, uh, which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanished. When it's warm, they cease to flow. In other words, when I needed it the most, when it was dry and hot and thirsty, you had nothing for me. Wow. Do you understand to, just time out. I know it's getting late. Look at this. Do you understand why it's important to rightly divide the word? Do you understand why it's important to hear and not speak all the time? Do you understand why it's important not to just give pat answers to the same situation? Every person is complex and different. Well, you should do this, brother. You should do that, brother. You should do this, sister. Well, wait a minute. Be careful. Maybe just go love them and hug them and pray with them and bring them a meal or send them a note or send them a text or go visit them or take them out. (laughs) Pastor John Corson tells an interesting story. He had a wife and a daughter die basically on the same curve in his hometown a couple years apart. And after the daughter died, (laughs) he just, you know, he'd been talking about how, you know, the first couple days everybody's coming around. And then, you know, after about five to seven to ten days, it kind of just dissipates and nobody comes around. He goes, it's nobody's fault. It just happens. He said, I had this really (laughs) fun brother, awesome brother. He just called me one day. Uh, I was at my house. I was really feeling down and low. And he said, hey, what are you doing? He said, well, nothing. He goes, well, get ready. I'm going to take you to the George Foreman boxing fight, and we're just going to go out and have fun. And he said, it doesn't sound real spiritual to you. He goes, but what that did for me, the guy just spent time with me and loved me. He didn't say one thing about some cute theological part, point. He just wanted to be around me and to be with me. And he knew I liked sports, so he took me to a sports place, and we watched a boxing match. 
He goes, it did amazing things for my soul. Here, they don't have anything when it's hot. But verse 18, the paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope. They're disappointed because they were confident. They come here and they're confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and afraid. And I wanted to get here. That's why I'm going so, so long. You know, I've asked myself, what in the world? Why are these guys like this? Why am I like this? Why do I have to be the one, or we have to be the ones who know it all and have the right answers and all the things, all our ducks fit in a row, and we can just, if somebody's hurting, we can just boom, 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 tell you what to do, pat you on the head, and have a good week. Why are these people doing this? Look, it's not because they're know-it-alls or anything like that. Look at this and this. They're scared. The guys are scared. (laughs) What do you mean they're scared? One thing I think they're scared of is they're going to, you're going to see behind the curtain and find out they're not so spiritual as you think they are. You know what? I find that the most declarative people, the people that, oh, I'd never do that, are the ones hiding something. Or how could that? If you get loud enough and you push it out there enough, nobody can see back in here. And they're afraid of what somebody might find including themselves. They're afraid. They're afraid you might understand that they're not as um, spiritual as you might think they are. They're afraid they might not measure up in any way. You see, they were afraid. Did I ever say, bring something to me? Isn't that funny? That's what Job says. Or offer a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of our oppressors. Here's what he says, in all honesty, just teach me and I'll hold my tongue. Cause me to understand where I've erred, how forceful are right words, but what does your arguing, arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of desperate one which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now therefore be pleased to look at me, for I'd never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands is there injustice is there injustice on my tongue cannot my taste discern the unsavory is there not a time of hard service hard service for a man or not as days like the days of a hired man like a servant who desires the shade and like a hired man who eagerly looks for wages So I've been allotted months of futility. Wearisome nights have been appointed. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise and the night be ended? For I've had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. More about his maladies. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. That's a weaver, like the the thing that's just going and going with the yarn in it. And the yarn's going to be used up. He just knows it's going to be used up and are spent without hope. Oh, remember, my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see him no more. While your eyes are upon me, I will no longer be. My life is just brief. I'm never even going to there, verse 10, return to my house. It's just so brief. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I'll speak in the anguish of my spirit. I'll complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? You you treat me like a dangerous animal, God. When I say my bed will comfort me, uh, my couch will ease my complaint. When, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with vision so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my knife. I wouldn't live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart at him, that you should visit him every morning? And te- In other words, you won't leave me alone. How long will you not look away from me and let, let me alone till I swallow my spit, my saliva? And here he comes. Look at this. He's getting on the edge. He begins to doubt. Have I sinned? What have I do, done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently. But I no longer will be. I just want you to see what the friends quote-unquote, 
impact had on him, he began to doubt him and God. In other words, be careful. Here, as we close. Ray Steadman says this, in every trial there are two purposes in view. Satan has his purpose, God has his purpose. Our sufferings occur at the point of conflict between God's purposes and Satan's. What is Satan's purposes in Job's suffering? He uses Job's pain and illness to torment Job's body. He uses well-intentioned comfort from the friends to afflict the soul. And Satan uses God's silent silence to assault Job's spirit and break his faith. But listen to this. Listen. God has two purposes that we can see already in the book of Job. First, he has a plan for using Job's suffering in Job's own life. He wants to use this trial of pain and loss to teach Job some truth that he's never grasped before. God wants to deepen Job's theology and help Job to know and understand him in a more real and profound way. Remember, I started this by, do you want to be godly? Second, God plans to use Job's suffering to answer Satan in the eyes of all the principalities and powers of the whole universe and to prove Satan was wrong in his philosophy of life. And remember, and I'll stop talking and you'll say, amen. Satan wants you to believe that God was made for you. Satan wants you to believe that he's an impersonal God that you can just put the quarter in and a Pepsi comes out or a Lexus comes out or a new job comes out. He just wants you to be that. He's the one that serves you. God says, no, you were made for me. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for these deep theological truths. I thank you, Lord, that You are so good. You're worthy to be praised because of who you are and not just because of what you give. And yet you do give, and it's glorious. Thank you, Lord, for salvation and fellowship and closeness by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.